You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. The world is filled with many questions, such as, did giants exist? What is junk DNA? Does it mean that you're trash? Do you ever wonder if aliens have underwater bases in our oceans, and that's why there are so many UFO sightings off the coasts of islands all over the world? How serious even is climate change, and when should we start building our rafts? Hello, everyone. You may recognize me as Gabby from the History of Everything podcast. And my name is Bruna, and you don't recognize me from anything yet. Together, we're two scientists who explore the answers to these questions and many, many more in our new podcast, Mystery Mystery of Everything, Everything. available everywhere you get your podcasts. On the night of April 22nd, 1987, Ruthie Mae McCoy called 911 at about a quarter to nine to report that someone was trying to break into her Chicago apartment through the bathroom mirror. She made two calls to 911 that night, and two neighbors who heard her screaming called as well, but nobody came to her aid. McCoy was found dead in her apartment two days later with one shoe off and one shoe on, lying in a puddle of blood. She had been shot four times by two young men who had indeed come in through her bathroom mirror. And if this sounds like something out of an urban legend, that's because it soon became one. Five years later, Ruthie McCoy's murder helped inspire the cult classic horror film Candyman. You're listening to History Uncovered. Brought to you by the digital publisher All That's Interesting, where we explore all things weird and bizarre in the natural world and the world past. I'm All That's Interesting's assistant editor, Megan Liscombe, and today I'll be talking about how the true story of Ruthie McCoy's murder is woven into 1992's Candyman, soon to get a sequel co-written and produced by Jordan Peele. In the original Candyman, an anthropology student named Helen is gathering urban legends for her thesis when she stumbles across the story of the Candyman, a sort of cross between Bloody Mary and the Hookman killer. He appears when you say his name into a mirror five times, then gets you with his hook hand. The janitors at Helen's school tell her about a woman named Ruthie who they believe was killed by the Candyman in the notorious Cabrini Green Project, a real development in Chicago that was built in stages starting in 1942 to offer affordable housing to the large numbers of African Americans who came to the city to work during World War II. At first, the development was viewed as a model for successful public housing, but by the time Candyman was filmed there, decades of disinvestment and extreme poverty had transformed the development into a rundown slum. Though far from Chicago's only troubled housing project, Cabrini Green became especially notorious because of its proximity to more affluent neighborhoods, which made it more visible to outsiders, and it was frequently portrayed in the press as a symbol of failure and blight. This visibility is also the reason why Ruth McCoy's story was transposed from the Abbott Towers where she lived to Cabrini Green. In the movie, they say Ruthie heard banging and smashing like somebody was trying to make a hole in the wall. So Ruthie called 911, and she said, there's somebody coming through the walls, and they didn't believe her. Ruthie then called 911 again, but still no one believed her. All the while, her neighbors heard her screaming, and one of them also called 911, but still no help arrived. In the movie, Ruthie is found dead, apparently stabbed with a hook. So Helen goes to Cabrini Green to investigate, thinking that she's found an exciting opportunity for anthropological study a community that's turned to myth to explain the very real horrors of life in the projects. 
But instead, she finds Candyman. The parallels between Ruthie McCoy's real-life murder and Candyman's fictional Ruthie Jean are striking. But though 52-year-old McCoy had schizophrenia and her neighbors often saw her talking to herself or cursing strangers on the street, what she reported in her frantic 911 call was all too real. Some people next door are tearing it down, she said. They throwed the cabinet down. She told the bewildered dispatcher that she lived in the projects in a building called Abbott Towers and emphasized that the elevator in her building was working, a rare occurrence that she'd hoped would hasten the arrival of the police. But one question looms. How exactly did Ruthie McCoy's actual killers break in through her bathroom cabinet? Reporter Steve Bagheera covered McCoy's murder extensively for the Chicago Reader and discovered that bathroom cabinet break-ins were quite common and well-known among residents of Abbott Towers. Apparently, the bathroom cabinets were installed back-to-back, with a pipe chase about two feet wide running between apartments. The cabinets had been loosely installed with just six flimsy nails to make it easy for plumbers to access the pipes for repairs. Gang members had found out about the pipe chases about a year and a half before McCoy's death and routinely used them to break into neighboring apartments. Bogira heard stories about gang members fleeing from police by shimmying through the narrow opening into a neighboring vacant apartment to escape or busting out the bathroom cabinets in a set of adjacent units and using them as a connected suite. In some parts of the building, it was even possible to climb vertically in the pipe chase and enter an apartment on another floor. The cheap construction and easy access that had been originally intended to make these housing projects a safe and affordable option for the majority black tenants who lived there had, over decades of neglect, become twisted into instruments of crime and a source of terror. Some residents that Bagheera spoke to reported putting furniture in front of their bathroom doors at night to protect themselves and their families from intruders. One woman told him, it's real scary, the idea that locking your door might not be enough. In Candyman, after Helen visits Cabrini Green, she goes to the library to look at newspaper articles about the supposed Candyman killing. As she flips through the microfiche, a headline jumps out. Who, what, killed Ruthie Jean? Life in the projects. The same could be said for Ruthie McCoy, though it might be even more accurate to say that trying to escape from the projects really killed her. McCoy lived alone in extreme poverty and struggled with mental illness. She'd only attended a year of high school, and she began showing signs of schizophrenia in her 20s. She had her only child, a daughter, Vernita, when she was 27 and raised her on her own. She worked menial jobs for months at a time, but her mental illness made it difficult for her to hold down a job much longer than that. She scraped by on a general assistance grant of $154 a month. Neighbors said she tended to dress like a bag lady, talked to herself, and quickly flew into fits of inexplicable anger. She often carried a stick which she wielded menacingly at kids who listened to loud music in the halls. And she was terrified of being robbed and obsessed with locks. She had asked the Chicago Housing Authority to change the locks on her apartment several times, 
and she had a habit of trying her neighbor's doorknobs and lecturing those who she found with their doors unlocked. But in the months before she was killed, McCoy had turned over a new leaf. She had begun taking classes to get her GED and talked about plans to continue her education after that to become a nurse. She had started to dress better and seemed less angry. She had hope. Then, staff members at the Mount Sinai Psychiatric Center where she went for treatment helped her apply for supplemental social security income for her mental disability, and a retroactive approval from the agency meant that she'd be getting a check for six months' income at once. For a woman used to living on $154 a month, the $1,979 check was life-changing. She began to talk about moving out. Unfortunately, in the projects, news of her windfall traveled fast. She had bought herself a new coat and a couple of new things for her apartment, and soon everyone knew that Ruthie McCoy had money. Chicago police said that the two young men who broke into McCoy's apartment on that April night were after her cash. When police finally searched her apartment, they found change, but no trace of the money that McCoy had hoped would be her ticket out. Soon, her television set and rocking chair turned up in the apartment of one of her killer's friends. Her telephone had also been taken, but it was never found. Be my victim. Be my victim. As for how Ruthie McCoy's story found its way into 1992's Candyman, Bogira believes that it was plucked from his reporting. He said that actor and Illinois native John Malkovich had expressed interest in the story and that the two of them met to discuss turning it into a movie. According to Bogira, Malkovich promised to pitch the story to several producers and be in touch. They never spoke again, but when Candyman came out, the similarities between the McCoy case and the movie's Ruthie Jean were abundantly clear. In the years since Candyman, the Cabrini-Green projects and Ruthie McCoy's Abbott Towers have all been torn down by the city of Chicago, ostensibly to make room for better public housing alternatives. But the city's efforts remain fraught. With the Cabrini buildings torn down, gentrification set in. Luxury apartments were built, with rents starting at around $2,000 a month for just a studio apartment. As the neighborhood became more affluent, Former Cabrini-Green residents were displaced in their search for new affordable housing and denied the chance to share in their neighborhood's revitalization. In spite of the gang violence and the way the neighborhood was demonized in the press, many residents had found community, safety, and a sense of belonging in Cabrini-Green that was suddenly taken from them. According to a study by the National Community Reinvestment Coalition, between 2000 and 2013, Gentrification pushed 111,000 African Americans out of the neighborhoods they called home. Seven cities were responsible for about half of this number, and Chicago was one of them. Against this backdrop, Jordan Peele's upcoming Candyman sequel is set to return to Cabrini-Green and once more tackle the neighborhood's complicated past and present through the lens of horror. But though the Candyman films have no shortage of scares, they can't possibly match the real horror of what happened to Ruthie Mae McCoy that night in 1987, or the real tragedies suffered by the severely underprivileged in neighborhoods just like hers. Thanks for listening to History Uncovered. I'm History Uncovered's producer, Kit Westneat. If you like the show, help others find us by leaving a review on Apple Podcasts or Spotify. 
And be sure to follow the All That's Interesting and History Revealed pages on Facebook and Real History Uncovered on Instagram. Make sure you don't miss out on the new episodes and subscribe to the History Uncovered podcast. And keep up with our latest stories at allthatsinteresting.com. If you have a question about the show or just want to say hi, feel free to call us at 929-526-3029 or email us at podcast at allthatsinteresting.com. This podcast is part of the Airwave Media Podcast Network. Visit airwavemedia.com to listen and subscribe to their other fine shows like Legends of the Old West and Redacted History. Until next time, keep exploring. What do you get when you take two childhood friends with a passion for unexplored history and a whole lot of booze? You get us, Queen's Podcast. And here at Queen's, we are spilling the tea on all kinds of women from history. From New Orleans voodoo queen, Marie Laveau, to Marie Antoinette, and everything in between. Each queen is paired with a cocktail recipe that will totally get you in the mood to hear the fun, dramatic, and juicy stories of fascinating women from history. Listen wherever you get your podcasts. Cheers! <laughs>